Hello Optimists and welcome to Optimist in Progress. Today we are talking to Matthew Biancanello, a cocktail chef and wildly inventive culinary creative and one of the key influences at the intersection of the cocktail revival and the seasonal organic movement and health and wellness trends that have swept LA in the first decade of the new millennium and continue at great pace now. His tenure at the Hollywood Roosevelt was legendary. He transformed a tiny overlooked bar into a destination spot that people would drive across town and even fly to get to, and people who have visited it still recall misty-eyed. Matthew is known for challenging rules and expectations of what a drink can be and what flavours should sit together. He has voted best bartender in LA on a couple of occasions and has no formal training. He's described as a curator and an artist, but also part scientist, part therapist, part yogi. He authored a cocktail book, Eat Your Drink, and presented a TV series, Good Spirits. And then in 2018, he opened what was referred to by one leading publication as the most extravagant cocktail experience in LA. It was a 12-seater tasting room in Malibu that many expected to win James Beard and even Michelin star awards. But then fate intervened with the Woolsey fire. His journey to the library bar in the Roosevelt Hotel and then opening of Mon Lee, which is his restaurant in Malibu, was a circuitous route and makes for fascinating listening. Roller Coaster really doesn't come close to describing his experience up to that point or even since. Indomitable is a word that springs to mind in the face of the many challenges and events that he's had to navigate. But what's amazing about the conversation with Matthew is his ability to have perspective, to tune into what matters and to be incredibly creative and at the vanguard of food and drink, even when the challenges of a fire or a pandemic got in his way. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. And Drea, you and I, I think are in for a treat. Matthew, hi, welcome. Hi, how are you? Nice to be here. Thank you for that amazing introduction. I think that's the closest I'm going to get to hearing my own obituary or someone reading at my own funeral. So I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. You gave me a little glimpse of what it could look like. <laughs> um, well, I can't wait to hear your story today. And we always start the conversation with the same question. And I've got a feeling I know what the answer is to this one. But we ask people's view on optimism and do you think of yourself as an optimist? Is optimism something that you take into your daily life? I have a very strong opinion about this because I feel that I am an optimist, but that doesn't mean that an optimist during his days or his or her days doesn't see the other side very often. You know, so what happens is my experience a lot of times is not optimistic, but my view and what I need to do on a daily basis to make myself optimistic. Opt optimism to me is not a natural thing, okay? Right. Especially when you're dealing with the mind. You know, yeah. the mind wants to go in so many directions. The mind wants to talk you out of things. The mind wants to tell you that you can't try it again. The mind just keeps going with that. And I think once you've had enough heartache or hardship, if you find a way to channel that in a positive way, it gives you the confidence to keep going. You don't feel so, um, Oh my God, not this again. Unfortunately, it's just buckle in, buckle in and do it. Do you know what I mean? And it doesn't mean that um, 
it's always going to come through the right way. Or, you know, there's, there's three answers. There's a, there's a wonderful book that I love by Tosha Silver. And I just love, there's three answers. Yes, no, or not yet. Mm-hmm. And that is very, very powerful because I think what people feel, at least I've, I've felt many times, like, when is this going to happen? When am I going to turn this around? When is this going to be different? And it's just not yet. There's no no yet. You know, if there was a no, you'd be trying something else, right? So um, I think optimism is probably one of the most important qualities, and I'll just speak for myself, that has kept me, especially during the pandemic. I mean, talk about where all of us had to find that deep inside of ourselves. I'm lucky that I had it. You know, I'm lucky that it was a, a, a tool that I already had available to me. Really interesting to hear people's take on it, but I think you're talking on practical terms about it, just making sure that you're aware that it's something that sometimes has to intervene in the brain's natural way of working to to kind of give it direction. Yeah, I do. And, I, and like I said, it, it's something that really births out of a personal hardship that you've had. I think that's what it comes down to, you know? And if you've been able to endure that, then... Um, you have a way of seeing things that there's always a way. There's always a way. That's how I feel. There's always a way. That's really uplifting, actually, to hear you say that. And um, I'm getting the sense that your lived experience is a crucial part of your psychology, of of your outlook. Um, I always ask the question about upbringing and um, early experiences. And I'd I'd love to hear from you uh, about your perspective. How do you believe your childhood or your upbringing uh, shaped your beliefs and values, especially in driving you toward working with these flavors and ingredients and and looking toward plants and different ingredients that, that helped you be so creative? Like, where do you think that came from? Well, I think I'm in a very unique situation uh, in the sense of that, um, you know, I was brought up half Greek, half Italian. I was brought up more in my Greek side. I grew up in Boston and my grandparents lived in Manchester, New Hampshire, which was an hour away. And um, in visiting them, what they basically did is they created a little Greece of how Greece was to them there. And everything was grown in their, um, every, this is, you know, you're talking like 30, 40 years ago, easily, you know, and here they are growing everything in their garden. They're only getting lambs that have been milk fed for us for Easter. And what happened with me was it wasn't so much that I chased flavor my whole life. I chased vibrancy. So what it is, is that food was cut moments before we ate it. You know what I mean? And so there was a vibrancy. So you could go to some of the best restaurants in the world and I wouldn't be impressed. I'm talking about early on. I wouldn't be impressed because there wasn't an energy in the food. You could tell whether the food, it's not just about that it's organic or it's local. It was, it was things being at the peak of their existence and being picked during that. You know what I mean? You know, how many times do you go into a supermarket and you see, you know, organic kiwis and they're from New Zealand, but they had to pick them three weeks ago in order to get them here, right? So you're never going to experience things like that um, where things are at its peakness. And it wasn't, so that was a huge part of it. So there was quality of food. I'm seeing people making food with their hands all day long. So, um, you know, and it was something that I was, I was fascinated with. I loved it. I didn't get involved with it until later on. You know, because I think there was a lot of different reasons, but intimidation was definitely one of them. 
but I just had such a long trajectory to really get to where I am right now. And I think a lot of that just has to do with a lot of different things that happened in my life and circumstances and feeling like I, I didn't have a lot of choices, you know, and I think coming later in life to what, you know, that's the difference too, is I ask people this all the time, you know, what's the difference between a calling and a purpose? Have you found yours and what's the difference? And what I say about what, what I say about bartending and chef and whatever I'm doing now, it was a calling. It was a true calling that took me out of nowhere. I just needed a job and this huge passion came outside of me. I was doing things and being motivated by things that I never knew was inside of me. Um, so it's really, really interesting too, where you can go through your life and be experienced and do a lot of things and realize, you know, like Joseph Campbell talks about too, it's like you will look back in your life and all these things that you didn't understand why or what, you'll see it was actually this symphony that was being orchestrated the whole time to get you where you were, you know, but you can't see the symphony when you're in the second note, right? So there's a huge advantage too that I, like most bartenders, came to this later in my life. I had such a rich experience and such a rich um, life already that I had a lot of things to draw from, you know? So let's talk about that piece then, because it sounds like your childhood was surrounded by Greek-Italian family influence, heavy on food, freshness, vibrancy, big family gatherings where uh, food and drink was kind of at the center. How did you come to be in L.A.? Talk us through the journey that took you there and then how you became, with no formal training, a lauded figure in the bar community. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was living in Boston and um, I couldn't wait to get out. I, I did not get into any colleges, um, but I knew that I was creative and I, and I was passionate. And I re my brother was living out in California at the time. He was going to school there and I went and stayed with my brother for it. Was, I think I lived in L.A. the first time about a year and a half. And I actually got into acting classes and I was interested in acting at the time. And uh, I went back to New York to study and study with uh, Stella Adler and these, a lot of these big teachers. And I was in New York for about seven years and uh, I got really heavily, I kind of got really into underwater filming and diving. My mom was living in Santa Barbara. I said, let me, let me go to Santa Barbara. I mean, that's such an amazing place for diving. And I, I went to Santa Barbara and uh, I ended up working for Jacques Cousteau's original producer. And I also worked for this marine biologist from UCSB. I did 180 dives in my first six months there. Wow. Unbelievable. Because we started going to all of these places and diving all these places that people weren't allowed. So I was doing five dives a day when we go on a five-day trip. And he, I was doing the photography and the video. And it was just like unbelievable, right? So I did that for a while. And then I kind of got the bug to go back to New York. I wasn't the same person. You know, when you can't like once you're in Santa Barbara and you're around nature like that and all of that stuff, you're not you're just not the same person. You that that environment right away is jarring. to. And then I was like, you know what? I got to go back to California. When I did a lot of different things. You know, my brother was the director of Michael Jackson's zoo and I started doing animal training with him. And then I started doing all these kinds of food stunts and stuff like that. And really, when I got the job at the Hollywood Roosevelt, I, at that point, I felt like I had exhausted everything to do in my life. and I didn't know what to do. But I knew I needed to make money. And I just happened to know the manager through yoga. She, she was in a lot of my classes and she managed all the bars at the Roosevelt. 
And she gave me a shot. And I remember she, she's like, I'm going to put you in this little quiet bar. There's not a lot of people. You'll be fine. My first night, I had to duck down and say to the bartender next to me, what's in a cosmopolitan? And that's how <laughs> little I knew about bartending. And then it just took over from that. You know, I, I looked at this menu. I said, these drinks are not worth $15. And I started replacing everything on the menu with things from the farmer's market. Because that's something I did know, right? Because yeah. I didn't know alcohol. I really wasn't much of a drinker. And one day she said to me, she goes, she tried one of my drinks. She goes, what the hell is in this? This is amazing. I said, well, I'm just using fresh pomegranate juice instead of that pomegranate liqueur. She goes, you're just buying this out of your own pocket? I go, yeah. She goes, I'll start giving you $100 a week. Well, I was spending $400 a week. I spent $8,000 out of my own pocket that first year. Wow. Just educated. the beginning of the movement. So I was educating myself on alcohol, ice, ingredients. And... The rest is kind of history. Like, like I said, I mean, within a year, I was in the New York Times, LA Times, and CNN. Wild. Amazing. And that's because you were just bringing a completely fresh take to... I brought a fresh take without being intentional about it. You know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. it, it would be different if, you know, back then I was like, I wasn't something like, okay, what's missing in the marketplace? It was more like, I was just doing what I could grasp onto to survive. And what happened was it was so dramatically different because people were just introducing all these classic cocktails and milk and honey um, in New York was really was the revival of that in the early 2000s. And that guy came over and trained all these bartenders at a restaurant here called Comsa, and that kind of spread out throughout the city. But they were all kind of doing that style. And I remember the first competition I did, that was it. I, a lot of them, it was, I just happened to get in this competition. This is what really changed. I happened to get in this competition for green chartreuse. And it was one of those competitions where you went up against somebody like in tennis and if you beat that person, you went on to the next round, right? Okay. So I went in the first round and I'm looking at him, he's doing all these things. I'm like, and I'm almost like was copying him. And the thing is they put all these ingredients in front of you and said you could do whatever you want. And I was ignoring that. I was like all caught up on seeing stuff I hadn't seen before, technique, right? Cause I didn't have technique. Thank God I made it through that first round because I stopped myself, I'm like, what are you doing? Do what you do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I went on and I, and I won that thing. And when I won that competition, that's when people noticed me and started coming to the Roosevelt. That's when writers came, bloggers came, all those early on people. And that's where my reputation accelerated pretty quickly. So after you left the library bar, which was the bar at the yeah, was at a small bar where there. you... you and how long were you there? Four and a half, and a half years. You wrote a book, you presented a TV series, and you opened up a series of pop-ups across yep. the city. How did that come about? Well, I think when I left the Roosevelt, what happened was I had, had a new GM. And uh, my old GM, who I was very close to, is now back there now. He really gave me great advice. You know, I was getting a lot of offers after two years. He goes, Listen, I know a lot of people are talking to you, but I can't stress enough the importance of staying in one place for as long as you can. And he was right, because the longer I stayed there, the bigger my reputation got. And it wasn't just reputation of being known. It was all the guests that I had nurtured relationships with. You know, I had nurtured that are still here today, nine years after I left, you know. And um, so this new GM was there. I didn't like him. And then, you know, I, we were I was wanting to get pregnant with my girlfriend at the time. And um, I knew that I was going to bed way too late. I, I knew that something was off. So I took time off to do that. And then she got pregnant. Um, and then I started entertaining pop-ups and doing things like that. I wasn't interested 
and going back to a bar. Because what happened was I was starting to do private events. I was starting to do consulting. And um, that's when I really started fusing food and alcohol together. I mean, it was just like, I, I, knew, I felt these, these changes. And it's, it's just like, a, I guess it's like a painter when he starts painting that something takes over. You know what I mean? And it's just like, it does, nothing else matters. And Eat Your Drink was the title of your book. That's the title of my first book. And then it was the title of my, my company too. And that really just kind of came about really from guests. You know, like I remember just different people coming in. I remember like the first time I let someone come in an hour before I opened. They had come up from Orange County. And I started making drinks. He's like, okay, what's next, chef? What's next, chef? He kept saying that. I didn't say Interesting. that. Interesting. He kept calling me chef. And then people would say, God, God, I don't even really need to eat anymore. It's like I'm eating my drink right now. Like I would keep hearing that, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I adopted that really from hearing that from people and taking it kind of literally because what was so great about where I was at and I think was a very unique situation in the library room, which no one really has that opportunity. Think about me being in there for four to five days a week for four years without a menu and just riffing all day. Who gets to do that? Do you know what I mean? And they gave me that permission because I was getting an enormous amount of press for myself and the hotel and the sales were, were skyrocketing, you know? And um, so that's kind of how that all came about, really. Can you share with us a little bit more about your relationship with food and alcohol? I, I hear that the blurring of boundaries is, is a huge part of this. Um, and yet there are emotional ties that yes. all of us have, right, to, to food and to alcohol for sure. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Excellent question, doctor. Um, what I would tell you, honestly, is I really started developing a eating disorder problem when I was about 10 years old. So I remember my family really thought I would, like I cooked for my family and stuff like that. And I remember one time I was in New York and I made this like 22 ingredient salad for Thanksgiving with this dressing and I made my own croutons from scratch. And my cousin would say, I think you missed your calling. I think you're supposed to be a chef, you know? And what's, what's deep down inside of me, I knew that I loved that, but I knew I wasn't safe around food. There was something deep inside of me that knew I wasn't safe around food. It was, it was impossible. You know what I mean? Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't see myself working around food and, and being okay with it. So what was interesting is, um, and I don't really drink. So alcohol to me, I think I could care less. So it's the opposite, right? And my, the development of that is my mom was such a hardcore alcoholic um, that I couldn't even smell it on women's breath. It was very dramatic and, you know, when, when I got this job with the Rosebud, people were like, I don't understand. You, you like, you don't like, you don't drink. You go to bed at eight at night and wake up at three or four in the morning. Uh, you're a yogi. Like they didn't get it. And it, it, at first I didn't get it, but I just needed a job. But I tell you what happened is a year and a half into doing what I was doing. And I remember the woman's face still. And I, now I know her name because I know her name. Um, but she was taking pictures of my drinks and she was savoring my drink. And it was a whole experience. And I just like stopped. And this huge awareness came inside me. I said, oh my God, I know what I'm doing. I have been unconsciously re-scripting my relationship to alcohol by making it something that's beautiful, something that you savor, right? And every memory since that moment, because of that awareness, has been gone of alcohol. It hasn't haunted me since. Gone. 
just from that awareness, you know what I mean? And it was very profound. So it, what happened was is I was wondering, like, why am I going to bed at three and waking up at seven and going to the market and then, you know, going 12 hours, It's not just the money. And uh, so that was very, very, very profound. And it's still a huge part. It's not so much I think about that because there was a there was a time at the library bar because it's a it's a bar. I'd have to cut people off from drinking or I'd have to slide something in that was virgin and it still tasted and looked like a alcohol. You know what I mean? So there was a lot of that going on. And then I felt like, oh, I was, I was being, um, <laughs> I was taking matters too much in my own hands in that way. And I had to kind of cool it, but um, yeah, it just was a huge part. So what was very interesting is, you know, yoga got me to really not ever really binge again with food. And so I started cooking basically. I started using these things in other areas. And I was like, it just got, it was like another excitement to me. It was like a new level of excitement that wasn't like I was sitting there and had to eat it all. You know what I mean? Mm. And, and I was just thinking about um, your ability to ch- kind of channel fulfillment, satisfaction, yeah. that, that kind of sense of deriving that soothing that comfort from other things the the visualization you know the beautiful uh, colors the the vibrant fresh ingredients um the artistic and creative pieces of this i mean and hearing you really give context to that helps me understand that like early in life there was this craving to be fulfilled in some way related yeah. to um yeah, were, related to food sure. And, and I'm so impressed at how you've been able to kind of create that element of satisfaction and fulfillment and comfort and how you can share it with others um, in a way that's like all of our senses. I think in the beginning of that, it was that I wasn't able to receive it. So it was easier to give it. So think of almost like a relationship, right? Let's just think of it as a relationship, like someone's more comfortable giving to the other person as opposed to receiving. And I felt like if I couldn't receive it, this is in hindsight, this is not in that moment. But I think in the beginning, it was like giving it, giving it. I felt like, let me live through them. Let me live through their experience because I can't, I can't experience it the way that they're experiencing it. I'm not going to be excited about this the way they're going to be excited about this. So from, from there, you set up Mon Lee, which was a 12 seat tasting space in Malibu which opened to rave reviews in 2018. Many who experienced it thought what you were creating was completely original. It was destined for huge awards whether it's James Beard or Michelin stars and then just five weeks after it opened it was burned down in the Woolsey fire Mm -hmm. which hugely affected um, the Malibu area in particular. Yeah. Can you tell us about what you'd created there and what the vision was and the magic that you created? Well, it really was a dream come true. And it really was a place that was genetically made for me. Uh, And I say that because it was right on the ocean. I had created three beds uh, that I grew everything. I had my own bees on the property that I personally took care of that I was going to produce my own honey for the drinks and to make mead. There was an amazing wine cellar where I made my own beers and I was creating. So I spent six months there prior to opening. It really was just me in the beginning. I was just, you know, and it was, it was great because I really wanted to create this concept where it was like a Japanese sushi bar meets Italian farm kitchen, you know? Wow. I didn't think it needed to be fancy. I just thought, 
you know, let all the jars speak for itself. I didn't want to have any bottles, you know, shown, like no brands shown. It was, it was all about these jars and what was in that. And um, so the menu really kind of naturally came about and it, it was 12 courses of liquid and six courses of food. I have the menu right above me here that I still keep up there. Um, so it was a very profound thing because it was a dream of mine. And when I opened it, I just immediately felt, oh my God, I, I, the whole vision was really to, you know, have a tasting menu change every, have a theme change every three months. Uh, but things would change within that menu because I really believe there's 12 seasons to a year, not four. It was just a dream come true. So when the fire came, which actually in three days is going to be the three-year anniversary, I was just in shock. You know, I was like in a psychological coma. It really was finally getting to another level that I had dreamed about. And I didn't, and it was, and it exceeded what I dreamed of, really. But what's interesting about it is when the fire happened, and even though, um, um, you know, it was devastating. I felt it was the best thing ever because those partners weren't the right partners for me. And guess what? I got to do it. If someone asked me if I can do it, I can do it. And I did it. So much emphasis is always put on the final product and not enough emphasis is put on the process. What that individual goes through, how they transform, how they learn, how they become another person that will change them forever. You can't get that from just an opening and some place looks great and you're just getting accolades, you know? It comes from the doing of it. So I was like, God, this is the best of both worlds. I got to do it and I don't have to do it right now. And they're not the right people. You know what I mean? Just before the pandemic, I did this amazing event at Sundance for Martha Stewart and blew all these people away. And there was this guy there from Tokyo who had a very famous sushi bar. And he was opening a bar and he's like, how would you like to do that? I'm like, I'm in, you know? And I said, I can't move there, but I could go there quarterly. So I was actually planning before the pandemic to open that bar for the Olympics two years ago. Wow. So then, then that got destroyed, right? Yeah. So, you know, um, it's a very interesting thing because the pandemic has been the most productive, electrifying 19 months of my life. And not all good happened. My father died. My mother-in-law died. My girlfriend I broke up with, you know. So that's the thing is you can't just, you can't just love stuff when things are going well. You can't just love things or things aren't just great because they're going well. They can be great and not going well. And that's, that's the beauty, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, listen, it, it, the strength that I get from all this is unbelievable. Uh, that's such a powerful sentence. Yeah. You, you can love things when things aren't going well. And, and I, I think that, that like that, that is such an interesting perspective and shows such an ability to have perspective on what's happening. Yeah. Because I think often you judge a process as to what the outcome is. But actually what you're talking about there is, is okay, maybe the outcome's not what I want, but the, the means, the, the doing, the, the, all the things that are running up to it, they're great. We just need to, to change the outcome. It's just one element. And I think that that's, a, that's an amazing perspective. And, and I, it, it's really inspiring to hear how you were forced to pivot by a, a, the Woolsey fire. But I wonder if the ability to 
move on from that helped you very quickly recognize it when the pandemic came if i hadn't had the experience of the fire i wouldn't have done what i did this last 19 months no way i would have had my coma then instead of my coma that you know that so that's what i'm saying is you have to be you have to be grateful for the fire that gave me the strength during the pandemic so the fire is what gave me the strength and the wisdom and to know that if you can come back from that or, or you don't stay in that, it's like you can go. And that's the other thing. I had a, a tremendous amount of gratitude. I lost a business. People lost their homes. People lost animals. People lost lives. I mean, it's, it, it mine is so small in comparison. You know what I mean? It's, it doesn't mean that it wasn't important or it doesn't mean that it wasn't devastating, but you do have to have that perspective as well. You know, a home is something that somebody built for 30 years and has memories and it's gone. You know, we don't even, some of them might not even get the insurance. We don't even know still, you know? So what's interesting about that is when it was taking so long to rebuild and taking so long to even get electricity, that's when things started to unfold, you know? And if they were, if things could have been fixed very quickly, it would have been a different story. It would have been up and running and maybe who knows what have happened. You know what I mean? Um, I still think that I would have been able to do an amazing job. Um, but it's just, again, it's yes, no, or not yet. There's a lot of research and, and story after story about how this industry is languishing. Um, you know, business owners, restaurant workers, um, economic instability related to the echo pandemic. And as I hear you talk about the next steps, can, can you tell us more about what you're involved in? Where are you directing your energies? What's next for you? Yeah. So what I was saying is um, all of a sudden now, I was really more of this artist and I had really great people working for me that really did a lot of the hard work, you know? And now it was just me and I had to be the grinder. So I developed that skill and that grit that I didn't really have, you know what I mean? Um, and that's another thing because I'm making drinks after drinks after drinks after drinks and it's just me. Now I've just added another, um, facet to me, but also another part of me that is indestructible in a way. You know what I mean? Um, so when it was starting to slow down, I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, people are starting to go back to restaurants. I'm like, why don't you just open up your home like you and do Monli basically, you know? And that's what I've been doing. I started the first two months where I just had people over, you know, $50 a person. I'll make you two drinks and some snacks. And then I started doing tasting menu and I just finished my 59th tasting menu last Saturday. Wow. And I usually do it for four to six people. And I'm starting the new menu tomorrow, which is what I, this is what I wanted. So what I'm doing is I'm actually continuing what I wanted to do at Mon Lee, which was I have the next three themes that I want to do. So the next theme is everything that takes place in the California kelp forest. So everything that lives in there, using the kelp, using the seaweeds, everything. The next concept after that, which I'll take January and then come in February, is all the food will be vegetarian and all the drinks will be meat-based. So I'll switch it. Oh, interesting. And then the third concept is all the depths of the ocean from uh, tide pool down to 3,000 feet. But I'll start with 3,000 feet as a dessert and go backwards. So those are my next three menus. You know what I mean? Wow. 
And so I'm busy for a while, you know? Um, and, and then also what's interesting is I became a partner in a bourbon company that's doing extremely well this year. Um, I just came out with a persimmon brandy where I'm selling, I only have 350 bottles that I'm hoping the next batch, I'm working on a deal to try to go directly to Japan. Um, I'm working on my second book. Um, I've been filming like crazy to create this YouTube channel as well. What is it that's helping the most in terms of your mental fitness? Because I'm hearing you say like you're involved in so much. And, and on the one hand, I'm so um, overjoyed and inspired by this productivity. And I'm also curious to know, how do you manage all that? And the still, only, this is the only way because I don't sleep. I haven't been sleeping very well. I do yin yoga almost every morning I can. Um, so about 45 minutes, which is just deep hip asha work. And that's amazing, okay? I swim three or four times a week. I play pickleball once a week, and then I do Pilates three times a week, and I walk. Now, the thing that's interesting, I tell you I'm doing all that. I'm doing that with my current schedule, and I'm like, I wish I could do more. Um, what happened during the pandemic, because I have twin boys, and I have them half the time, so I have them from Sunday morning to Wednesday morning. What happened during the pandemic too that developed was um, they were on Zoom, obviously, right? So they were home. I'm like, yeah. how am I going to do this? So I woke up every day at 3 a.m. and I worked from three to six until they woke up. And I did my yoga, I did my readings, I did all of these things that have got me to where I am now. So this morning I woke up at 1.30. I did not go back to sleep. Ideally, I like to sleep six or seven hours, but my point is, is um, I had to go to the farmer's market. So, and I did some work. I went to the farm. I took care of them. I brought them to school. I picked them up from school. Then I went for my walk. And that's the other thing. I saw Kobe Bryant speak something about injuries. And I'll, I'll tell you what happened in the last two weeks, which is why it was, has been so daunting for me, is he says, you know, you really have to deal with one step at a time. If you look up at that mountain, how far you have to go, it's daunting. You know, and I definitely meditate a little bit, not a lot, but I should meditate more. But I, it is the, the biggest thing for me is I spend a lot of time alone and I really am very good at being quiet. And everything comes to you when you're quiet. Your true essence, your true ideas. This menu that I'm starting tomorrow, I woke up one day at 2 a.m. I wrote the whole menu. I haven't even tried one thing yet. And Crazy. And it starts tomorrow. So, you know, it's just the way, and the thing is, I think one of the things that's so awesome, and I think it's not so awesome for the restaurants, but I think people's habits have changed now. They're used to being at home. They're used to cooking. They're self-sufficient now. I think what makes my experience at home so unique, I'm doing 14 courses. I'm cooking everything myself. A single person helping me here. I'm doing the whole thing, and, and they're sitting right in front of me and getting to talk to me for three hours. So now they're in a home. So that feels comfortable, but they're still going out, but then they're talking to the chef for three hours. So now it is an experience that does not exist. And that wasn't necessarily, I didn't set out to do that. It's again, it's what people are telling me. It's the same thing being at the library. I'm hearing all these people say these things to me. You know what I mean? I want to thank you for <laughs> taking time today in, in a day where you've been up since 1am this morning. One third. Uh, I, I think we've, we've got just two more questions, I think. So um, I, I just had a question with, with days so full as you have and so many projects and your creative um, 
ability going in so many uh, different expansive directions. What are the things that you do that give you energy? You've talked about kind of how you look after yourself, but when you're when you're working and you've got a huge amount to do, you know, you're creating drinks, you're creating menus, you're um, consulting for bars and restaurants, you've got bourbon. What is the thing that you do that gives you the most back? Honestly, I really think it's yoga, quiet time. You know, um, I've really made my home my sanctuary so it doesn't feel like I'm working. But listen, there the days I'm very, very, very tired. You know, I am tired and I was able to start taking naps, which was fantastic, you know, um, and very life-changing. Yeah, I, you know, the, the greatest moment I had last week is, um, so I had the sea urchin diver collect a bunch of giant kelp for me because one of the snacks for the menu is going to be these, you know, fried kelp chips that I'm working on, right? And all I was doing was I was at my sink and I was cutting the kelp leaves off of the bulbs, you know? And um, it just started to transform me, you know? It was just, I couldn't. That's when I said, I hope this private party cancels tonight. So I left it up to the universe to decide whether I was going to go or not, but I ended up going and I, I, it was great. But my point is, is I wanted to cut those leaves all day. So Diane Arbus has this quote and she says, you know, my favorite place to be is where I've never been before. And that's how I feel. Working with something I've never worked with before. Um, there is a huge creativity that pours into you from that. That it's it's one of the reasons why they talk about, you know, for to be creative, you have to constantly change what you're doing. And it was the cutting of those leaves that was the most profound thing that I can think of in the last three months. I think that is relaxing. You know, when you're really doing something that you love and you are honestly open to what it is and what it could be not trying to control it or the biggest thing is for me is not, not trying to do the same thing again you know that's hard well matthew thank you so much for joining us today what a, what an amazing um journey that has taken you to to such an incredible you're, you're sort of on the forefront of so many different things in 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 culinary circles in food and drink in mixology circles and but it's also brilliant just to hear your story. And I think what's interesting is each kind of each stage seems to push you to a more creative, more experimental place. Whereas I think a lot of people um, could quite easily kind of close up and become more conservative at that. Stage. So well, uh, evolution and progress are the most important things to any soul, I believe. You know, if you're not having that, you're not growing, you're, you're dying. You know what I mean? You're dying in some way, you know what I mean? You can live a very fine, comfortable life. And I'm not saying you have to do drastic risks, but you do have to evolve and you do have to grow constantly. One thing that we always like to hear from is, is if, if there is a music, I know you like silence and maybe that could be the si uh, silence, <laughs> could be your cultural inspiration. Is there any piece of cultural inspiration, maybe a track or something that you've seen recently or even read that we can uh, give to the Optimist in Progress listeners to be a bit of inspiration from you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. All nature is inspirational to me. I, uh, I listen to whales singing a lot. You know, I do that. I have that. I have that on my Alexa because, you know, I swam with humpback whales in 96 for a whole week straight. 
And that, that was a very profound thing. So when I'm feeling kind of like a little bit off, I'll play those whales because it's like, I remember that moment. You know, I remember that moment. I remember that moment of diving down and um, they were singing and it was like an amplifier went through. It was, went right through my chest like I swallowed an amplifier. And wow. I, I was changed forever for that, you know? Um, I get a lot of inspiration from books and stuff like that, but nature is my biggest. That's, that sounds great. I think the Humpback Whale song is, yeah, a, is a wonderful thing and I, I look forward to putting that on there. Well, Matthew, thank you. What a, what a great, inspiring conversation. I think it is only uh, an exciting prospect to think about uh, your next plans that are going to be more and more expansive and more creative. So we, we uh, look forward to seeing them. And thank you for your uh, conversation today and sharing thank so generously. You. Thank you so much for having me. It was really an honor and I look, I look forward to seeing you and working with you guys. Thanks for listening to the Optimist in Progress podcast, brought to you by Optimist Drinks. This podcast is presented by Dr. Drea Lettermendi and me, Tom Johnston. It's produced and researched by Lisa Farr-Johnstone, with original music from Reginald Science Perry and edited by Brian Ward and Aginia O'Dell. Email podcast at optimistdrinks.com with any questions or ideas and follow us at Optimist Drinks on Instagram for updates on upcoming shows.